Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Good morning. How are we doing? I uh, couldn't help but notice that as we continued to, you know, expand and do the building work that uh, our new technology is allowing us to uh, send a perfect bat signal. (laughs) So you get what you pay for. And if you didn't see it before, now you can't unsee it. (laughs) Also, if you notice that there's some water coming in the building in this uh, heavy, heavy rain that we've had, uh, let me be reassuring, there is a giant piece of metalwork that is still out being fabricated that actually joins the two buildings. It's not up there right now. So uh, this was a planned leak, more or less. So I'm going to ask you a question you probably haven't been asked in a while. Some of you have probably been asked more than others. And you can ask it in a variety of ways. But here it is. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? We're used to asking that question when we're younger. People ask us that, we ask ourselves that, what am I intending to accomplish, to become? And there's a time in life when it's actually pretty exciting because you're full of anticipation at all the possibilities, right? Like, remember when you went to the amusement park and the sign said, you must be this tall to ride the ride, and you were like, I just can't wait. Life will be so good when I am 41 inches tall. (laughs) And then you get to be 41 inches, and you're like, eh. But something psychologically happens to us as we get older, and we stop asking ourselves that question, and that ought not be. Now, you can ask this in different ways and get different results. So just so you know, if you at some point today turn to your spouse and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? That might not go well. It might have some implications with it. But we're supposed to be becoming something. We're supposed to be thinking about who we are. We're supposed to be growing. We're supposed to be in a process of becoming more and more Christ-like, more and more useful in the kingdom of God. And that is countercultural because we have a very, very specific trajectory to life within the Western world. And that is you start out and you get your education and you choose your vocation and you work for a while and you get some security and you retire and you coast and enjoy the rest of your life. Uh, okay. Uh, take it wherever you're going. I don't know. Which may be a great way to think about our vocational lives, but it's not a great way to think about our spiritual lives. Because we are being ever-changed into the image of Christ. So the longer we are in this process, the more we are asking this question, what do I want to be when I grow up? What will I do? How will I function in the kingdom? What will change with me? What is my calling? How will I make a difference? Not just a difference in my own story, but a difference in the world. We're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. 
We're supposed to be doing something and accomplishing something. In fact, Jesus' vision was that we would change the world in his name, make it different. It would be different because we lived and breathed and walked and interacted and spoke and loved and cared. What do you want to be when you grow up? If I were to invite you to hover over your life at 10,000 feet, what would you see? We call it metacognitive thinking, thinking about your thinking. If I ask you to just give yourself a chance and hover up there and, and look at your life and assess your life, what business are you in? What is it that you are doing with your life? What does the evidence show, the actual thing that's happening to you? Would you say that you're in the relationship business? That what you really pay attention to, what you are devoted to, what has high priority in your life are relationships. Maybe you'd say, well, I'm in the business business. I, I'm working at working. A lot of my life is dedicated to just working and making ends meet and accomplishing that side of my mind, the development phase. A lot of energy goes into that part of me. I'm in the education business. I'm getting an education right now. That's, that's what really dominates my time and energy. If I just assess it all. Some of us are in the recreation business. We're just waiting for the next good time. We're devoted to it. Some people are really good at it, by the way. It's amazing. If you just assessed your life at 10,000 feet, if you just hovered a little and looked at it, what, what business would you be in? Because it matters. What do you want to be when you grow up? What business are you in? Who do you blame for the mess we're in? I mean, if you stop and you think about who's causing the problems in our culture and in our world, most of us have a fairly distinct opinion about that. We can rattle it off fairly quickly, which also says something about who we believe ought to be fixing it, what's messed up and who ought to be fixing it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ suggests that you and I are supposed to be fixing it. That you and I are the people who are to be the difference in the world. We're, we're supposed to be functioning in such a way that millions of us who gather around the world on this day are planting mustard seeds day after day, week after week, year after year, and the result is a different world than the one we see now. Now, we don't know what it would look like if we withdrew all of those mustard seeds. What would the world look like? It's probably far better off. In fact, I'm sure it's far better off for all of those points of light and all of those folks who are flavoring the culture and the world. What business are you in? How are you making a difference in the journey? So when we start to think about it and we put it, everybody doing okay, by the way? Good. It is fall. Now, I don't guess it's going to stay fall, but 60 degrees outside and it's overcast and misty, rainy. It's winter watch. We're on winter storm watch today. <laughs> and, and so many of you came out in the storm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Braving the elements and everything. Uh, 
And we're thinking about what it means for us to change the world in His name. Every Christmas season, which by the way, I was at Ace yesterday, I took a photo from the Halloween decorations through to the Christmas decorations, which were being put up yesterday. Some of you are disappointed, others are glad. I am among the glad. Can't get enough Christmas. But every year, by the way, I don't know if any of you have noticed this, now that you've noticed Batman. Last week in the 1130 service, I didn't know what time it was, so I asked the crowd, what time is it? If you want to turn around and look, the staff recognized that I should probably know what time it was. So I'm not having a hard time seeing it. Every year around Christmas time, I like to read the original version of A Christmas Carol. I, I just think the, the writing is so fantastic. And here's what's interesting, because we've turned it into such a sweet story, you know, we've forgotten that it's actually quite preachy. Are you aware of that? So I thought I'd just read you a little bit of it this morning. Oh, captive bound and double ironed, cried the phantom, not to know that ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures... For this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is susceptible is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunity misused. Yet such was I, such was I. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply the lessons to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Humankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. What business are you in? Jesus makes it pretty straightforward in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.13. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds And glorify your Father in heaven. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What do you want to be when you grow up? uh, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either they'll hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. By the way, this sermon isn't about money. There will be no offering at the end. Take a deep breath. You can relax. 
just because the title of the sermon is The Giver, it's not that kind of giving, at least not exclusively. You look through these lenses at the world, and if your eyes are full of light, then inside you there is light. But if you look out through lenses that are dark, then the darkness in you is dark indeed. How do you see the world? How do you assess things? How do you think of things? What are you becoming? How are you growing? If we're waiting on the world to change so we can feel better about it, that might be sticky. It might be difficult. But if we're asking God to change the lens through which we see, if part of our maturity, if part of our growing is that we are understanding we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, we're ambassadors of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal through us, and we are to look at the world through lenses of light. It's easy to blame. It's easy to assess what's going wrong. It's much harder to be the difference, and yet you and I are called to be exactly that, to make a difference. Matthew 14, 4. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. That's such a convicting story. You feed them. You fix them. You love them. You make a difference. You be the resource. Don't send them somewhere else. Don't think it's up to someone else. We do this series in the fall. This series happens this time to be called Be the Difference, but the fall series is about why are we here? What is the church about? We're not here to build a great church, although that's fun. It's nice to have a church that we love each other and we care about each other. We're here to change the world in Jesus' name. We're here to make a difference. We're here to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're here to make a difference in this community, but a difference in this city. We're here to make a difference over at the, the, the tip of Africa, where this morning some folks are meeting and some kids will eat this week because we're a part of it. We're a part of it. It matters. What are you going to be when you grow up? What business are you in? If you hovered at 10,000 feet, what would it look like. The story that's found in Matthew 19 is a hard one. The story of the rich young ruler. So there's a couple of disclaimers we have to give you before we read the story. The first one is this. Jesus doesn't tell anyone else in the New Testament to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. So take a deep breath. <laughs> None of us want to be on that end of that conversation, do we? I mean, none of us want to have Jesus look at us and go, you know, just one thing you lack. Sell everything you've got and give it to the poor, and then you will be okay. Uh, I don't feel like I'll be okay. I don't feel like that's going to go well. I got so many worries now, that would sort of compound my worries. But just because it's not specifically content-wise directed at you and I, still there's a lot for us to learn from the story and the interaction between Jesus and and this young ruler. Matthew 19, 16 through 22. I want you to listen for the nuances of this story because Matthew stylizes it in a special way. Matthew 19, 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? 
Why do you ask me about what is good? Anybody know how Mark and Luke write this story? Good teacher, what must I do to internal? Only one is, why do you call me good? Only one is good. Matthew has such a high Christology that he won't have that conversation. He, he kind of, he glosses over it a little. Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven and then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Well, a couple of things to notice in the stylized way in which Matthew records the story and the stylized way in which Jesus teaches. The first one is this. The, the young man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, keep the commandments. And he says, okay, which ones? Now, Jesus chooses to speak to him about the second half of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't talk about the four commandments that have to do with honoring God, but he mentions the six commandments that have to do with loving our neighbors as ourselves. And not only does he focus in on this relationship side of things, but he also takes them out of order, ending with honor your father and mother and then giving a summation, love others as you love yourself. So we begin immediately to assess that this fellow who has gotten a lot of money, been very successful, has had some relationship problems along the way. Not the least of which is likely he has disenfranchised his parents because one of his primary financial responsibilities is to take care of his parents. And so Jesus is sort of mucking around in the question of what he wants to be when he grows up and what business he's really in. I see several possibilities that are happening in the conversation and maybe you and I want to think about. Number one, he might have been in the checklist business. How many of you are checklist people? Okay. I don't know why that is so hard to admit. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. How many of you have ever had a Franklin planner? It's really interesting to me. Um, That's what happened first service. Twice as many people had Franklin planners who admitted to being people of checklists. But Franklin planners are checklists. (laughs) And people down here are like, I don't even know what a Franklin planner is. It's come and gone. You need not worry about it. It's the same place as the blackberries went. You don't need to know. (laughs) Don't need them. Your phone does many more things than any of that. Checklist. I like checklists. And if I assess why I like them, because they close out the distractions around me. Anybody else feel that way? Now, some of you don't make lists, so you didn't raise your hand. But some of you do make lists in your head, don't you? you got a checklist in your head. Most of us do. we got a thing going on in our head, and it allows us to close out the distractions and focus. One of my least favorite things in the world is multitasking, so therefore I went into ministry. <laughs> and why do I not like to multitask? Because I'm, I'm, I'm more of a plotter. Let me do one thing, and let me get it all done, and let me move to the next thing, and, you know, and if somebody calls and... It might take me a long... I might have to play six games of solitaire to get back on track. Anybody else like that? 
so nice when you leave me up here hanging. No, I never play solitaire at work. Checklists allow us to get after the business of our lives without the emotional entanglements of our life. And this guy might have been in the checklist business where he just said, I've got a list of things, I've got to get successful check, I'm going to get great wealth check. But somewhere along the way, that checklist mentality, that checklist business had allowed him to close out the emotional connections of his life. I sure hope that's not us. And I know sometimes we get a little confused here because we will say, well, no, I'm deeply connected to the emotional content of my life. But so often for us, that checklist includes our family. And then once that emotional content is done, that's all the emotional connection and context we have. We do our business, and part of that business is the emotional context, but we forget you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. It is though, as though God himself is making his appeal through you and me. The checklist business. The second thing I see is he was in the perfectionism business. That, that he had decided that if he got everything right, then everything would go right. Anybody, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody think like that? I'm going to get it all right. I'm going to fix it all. I'm going to, I'm going to do the right thing by this. I'm going to do the right thing by that. I'm going to do the right thing over there. I'm, going to do it. I'm even going to be the right thing spiritually. And if I do all of the things right, then God is going to help me and bless me. And everything's going to work out the way it's supposed to work out. And I'm going to be happy. And everything's going to get fulfilled. And so my job is to be in control. Because when I'm in control, I'm taking care of all the business. I'm doing everything. I feel that pressure every day. I wake up every day to get it all right because I have a perfectionism that drives me. <laughs> And some of us are in that business. And it's not because we're OCD or any of those other things. It's because we really want to control the outcomes of our life. And if we get it all right, then the outcomes have got to be right. Right? (laughs) Except life isn't neat like that. And so if we're in the checklist business or the perfectionism business, it might lead us into the third kind of business I see happening in this story, and that is the delusional business. (laughs) Amen. Because I cannot possibly believe that I am getting everything done and that I'm getting it done perfectly unless I allow myself certain delusions. And this guy has got a lot of delusions. Isn't it funny how much we can convince ourselves that we're doing all right? I mean, we can convince ourselves of almost anything. That somewhere in the process, as we drive our lives, as we feel the stress of our life and the pressures of our lives that drive us into these behaviors like checklists where I've got, I've got a mental checklist going all the time and then I'm going to do this 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 and when I get this done, then I'm going to do this and this will be a good day because I've got a lot of things done. <laughs> Bob Zanner, one time I heard him speak and he said, a Western way of thinking, making lists, we don't ever get them all done. Most of us have a longer list at the end of the day than we did at the beginning. We wake up every morning, he said, in emotional debt. Every morning. And then we decide what we're going to do is we're just going to get better. We're going to get better at that. We're going to read a book. We're going to be in the self-help business. We're going to do something. We're going to assess some things. We're going to reassess some things. We're going to hover at 10,000 feet. We're going to decide what we want to be when we grow up. And we're going to fix it. Whatever's broken, we're going to fix it. 
Not just in us, but our kids and our grandkids and the people we know. And if people want to know what needs to be fixed, we've got a list for that too. And somewhere in there, we begin to create delusions in our life about how well we're doing or how poorly we're doing. And Jesus invites us out of that business, the delusional stuff. Number four, there is a business of imbalance going on. There's a business of imbalance. This is really the point of the conversation that Jesus has with the man. He's really saying to him in a very specific way, listen, your life has gotten completely out of balance until all you care about is money. And until you can break that imbalance, you're not going to be a healthy individual. It's not about him giving everything to the poor as a requirement. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear. Why don't you just keep 90% and give God 10 and that'll work out, which is a way workable deal than sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And so he's asking him to pull his life back into a place of balance. I don't know, how many of you have ever done a Myers-Briggs assessment? Good. Wow. That's good. Because Myers-Briggs is old. You know. <laughs> we don't use it a lot anymore. Because now we're on the Strengths Finder, the new Gallup study, which is a positive psychology. What's good with you? Some of the strengths don't sound like strengths. I'll be honest with you, get some of those and go, uh, this seems obsessive compulsive, actually. <laughs> My strength is to be obsessive and compulsive. Myers-Briggs centers itself around four core temperaments, which is kind of fascinating. A study a few years ago by two Catholic theologians found that if you begin to assess Christianity by this measure of Myers-Briggs, you find that the four Gospels all reflect one of the core temperaments. So if you've ever read one of the Gospels and gone, I like this one better than the others, it may be closer to your core temperament. Here's a fascinating piece of the study. It finds that in the general population, 40% of all human beings on the face of the earth share one common core temperament, 40%, which means the other three core temperaments are divided between the other 60%. In the church, that single core temperament is 50% of the population. Half of the people who attend church share a common core temperament. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> Clearly, it's earth-shattering for all of you. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that most of the worship music is written by the one core temperament. Most of the devotionals are written by the one core temperament. Most of the things you can sell have to be written for the 50% core temperament. So if you've ever sat in church and go, I don't get it. They're all getting blessed, but I'm not. I don't get it. You're probably not the dominant core temperament. But here's what's fascinating. When the study looked at Jesus and his temperament, it found that he represented the four temperaments in a balanced way. And so as we grow more and more Christ-like, our inner world becomes more and more balanced. And that's what Jesus was assessing in this moment. I don't need to get rid of the need to make money and provide and do those things. I need to hold it in a balance that makes sense. I need to have the priorities set up. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added. Your Father knows you need them. Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But just get the priorities right. Just get it straight. Just don't forget what business you're in. Just, just don't forget what life looks like. 
at 10,000 feet and what you want to be when you grow up. Balance. If this morning I were to ask you, where is the imbalance in your journey and in your life, what would you say? Is it obvious? When you hover at 10,000 feet, can you see it? And then finally, Jesus wraps this up by saying, what I want you to do is to be in the giving business. I want you to give of your time. I want you to give of your energy. I want you to give of your resource. I want you to be uh, people in the world that represent the best of the kingdom of God. Are we? If I ask you to do an inventory and just say, what down the list, how does it all fit together? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of love and grace. Amen? And maybe you walked into this place this morning and there's a part of you that's struggling and you got stuff happening in your life. And the last thing you wanted to hear this morning was a sermon about what we're supposed to go do. Aren't you thankful for a gospel that says, okay, because first and foremost is a God who loves us. Who sees us. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going we're gonna to worship around Romans 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. In view of God's mercy. Maybe you came in here this morning and you need to have a moment in God's mercy. You need to know he sees you. You need to know he loves you. You need to know that he cares about your circumstance. And his intention is, first of all, to redeem you, is to work inside the story of your life. And all he asks is that he works inside the story of your life is that you then make room to give and share that story of redemption and grace and healing and hope. Amen? Pray with me. God, we are in the business of humanity. We're in the business of what it means for us to care about the people around us, to love them. But before we love others, we sometimes have to get our hearts, souls, minds, bodies in shape. So I'm praying for the needs represented, not only in this room, but online and, 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 and those that will watch through the course of this week. I'm asking that you do the work inside every heart and inside every life, inside every body for healing, for encouragement, for peace, for grace. We need you. We welcome your spirit. We, we invite you to do work in us. We breathe in your grace. We breathe out your praise. And as we experience the beauty of your presence, would you speak to us about what we're going to be when we grow up? About where we're headed, about what we're becoming, about how you invite us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So as we close, we ask that you just do business in each of our hearts. You'd pour out grace and healing to those that need it. You'd allow us to reassess and hover at 10,000 feet that you would just do your work in us. 
I lift these needs to you. I pray your grace, your healing, your touch, your presence in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.